Amen. I haven't started my half hour yet. Um, uh, I really appreciated um, uh, Glenn mentioning the Hebrew Four Scripture because I, I I wrote it down early this morning in my introduction, um, only to say that um, you know I've been sort of helicopter riding around some of these issues of stewardship. Probably a great retreat theme for you to do one year is exactly what Glenn was talking about, which is our understanding of Scripture teaches about rest in the land. And by the way, that's not taking a vacation. The whole idea of Sabbath, Shabbat and Sabbath principle, that's what he's describing, is that act of rest. It rests in the spirit of the body. There is a holy action of God. There's still those on in it. And I would, I would encourage you in your meditation on time issues to, to do some of your own uh, scriptural study. Uh, I, 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 reg- I regard rest and Sabbath rest as a bondage breaker. It was meant as a bondage breaker. You hear all sorts of messages on spiritual warfare and deliverance. You'll rarely hear anyone talk about Sabbath. God ordained that in a way. It was grace to find I'm just saying, put it on your uh, put it on your radar. Uh, Glenn and I will tell you. Those of you pastors, Meg, all the pastors and staff, the male female pastors and staff, listen. Shabbat and Chapter 
on Sabbath as a man for Caesar. Study the book about those two. The man of Jesus Christ. Finding ways to practice rest time in our relationships, especially our relationships. How do you know that's, that's hard to get? And an argument that's fictional, the rest time is fictional, and it's good. Uh, and that's his truth. You know what you're making, you're bothered to ask for a fix. You couldn't go out of place to get private time away. And so, and so I also turned around, going on 30, two levels of every day to look after the fiction stuff. It's very interesting. Um, when you start to ask the Lord to teach you how to redeem time to hold the rest of time, what the impact is on how it works. I remember coming down, don't go back to I remember coming down to um, breakfast one morning, we were at and my mother, my mother sort of sat with us, and I was going to wait, she was looking at the and said, I'm following the search, and very, she was very annoying. Very, too annoying, actually. And a little flirtatious. And I came down the steps, and she sat down the bottom of the steps, and she said, um, again? <laughs> <laughs> And she goes, it's going on. And I honestly express my surprise, and she knows I'm okay. And I said, she said, come on, Daddy, it's date night. <laughs> she knew at the end of our Sabbath and rest time. Yeah, Rest time. Applying the Sabbath principle. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. He is our rest. But you know, God has commanded the rest from us into how much we need our conduct. And don't forget that in Sutra, the first thing is fulfilled. It wasn't a mount, it wasn't a tabernacle, it wasn't a thing. Just the first thing in the Bible is fulfilled. And God falls from seventh day. Okay, let's uh, move on. I shouldn't have made some notes before. Restoring the past, say it with me. Secondly, Giving you time. Uh, I just want to drop a thought in your head. Uh, I can probably do this in 10 minutes. Um, probably can't. Um, 
remembering the end. I'm suggesting these as three big areas that have to be on our radar if we're problem solving our stewardship of time. The great accusation of Jerusalem by God through Jeremiah was she remembered not her end. There are two great motivations for our holy use of time. I'll get straight to the point. One is the hope of heaven. You sang about it today in the song. You're, you're singing away about gates of gold and, and who knows what, okay? But the second is the fact of judgment. Now, I know that's not a popular thing in today's evangelical culture to talk about. Frankly, I don't use the word evangelical anymore. I don't know what it means. You have to ask 20 questions to find out what it means. I just find it so much easier to say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's even tough to use the word Christian. I think if I could do a crusade, I'd ban everybody using the word Christian. But what's interesting is, it wasn't the church that named themselves Christians, it was the watching world. Very interesting. So we just need to find out what the world actually feels like. So evident that that would be... Uh, our designation. So, because the J word, uh, we, we, we don't like to talk about. But what I'm saying, and then I'm going to run, um, essential to that seriousness with which we take this commitment to steward our time is not only the reality of the hope of heaven, but the reality of the judgment seat of Christ. And the choices we make, and how we respond to the tests and the trials, and how we choose to obey and to trust and how we choose to live holily today and expectantly tomorrow has a lot of determinations for us for eternity. I'm not talking about the difference of destinations between what Scripture describes as heaven and hell. I'm talking about the differences even in how believers, according to Scripture, will experience the rewards related to faithfulness and fruitfulness. There's nothing quite like a faulty biblically uneducated view of future time or our future hope or of heaven for watering down our spiritual life or lulling us into deception about what God requires of us at the present time. And it's interesting when you look at how Paul does his pastoral training, he has no qualms about pulling the judgment card in his training course for Timothy. It's interesting how he charged Timothy to preach the word this is what I think all of us who labor in the word need because it keeps us faithful to keep our eye on the one who is coming, not on our audience. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, this is pretty august, who will judge the living and the dead. And in view of his appearing, Tim, I give you this charge to preach the word. What a, what a context. It reads like, Paul handling the baton onto the next generation because he immediately goes on to say that he's finished the race and the time of his departure has come. And he's looking forward to the crown of righteousness, which is for those, quote, who have longed for his appearing. 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 8. Do you think Tim ever forgot that? That charge by the second coming I think was probably worth a heap of homiletics and hermeneutics classes. 
See, it's not an either or, but God help us if the motivation for ministry and our walk with Jesus is not charged. Our understanding of time, our stewardship of time is not charged by this awesome future hope. And I don't think we can remain as faithful as we think we are or prophetic in our culture if this hope either ceases to motivate us or ceases actually to be the content of our preaching and teaching. You know how it is. We sit around at our New Year planning meetings. We'll probably we'll do it again uh, in a few weeks. Whether they be business, ministry, uh, academic, financial, social. And we're all skilled at asking questions. We've been trained to ask them. Where do we want to be in a year's time? Is heaven expected to be an answer to that? What are your goals and objectives? In planning the future, we've had the ways, we have the means, we have the analyses, we have the support of statistics, we have the old balance sheets, we have the new proposals. I'm going to graduate. Plan and prepare for it. I hope to get married. Plan and prepare for it. The kids are getting married. By the way, if you hope or plan to get married, you don't have to wait till you meet the guy or the girl to start premarital. I used to do pre-marital classes for the unmarried. Only because it's all God's truth. By the way, marriage is not the primary identity issue of humanity. It's a secondary one. But the truth about what it changes your life is it's a sort of discipleship, a discipleship thing. But we know, yeah, plan, plan, if you're going to get my plan for it. The house needs redecorated. Plan and prepare for it. You're going to retire. Anyone coming up for retirement? How many of you know in the Lord's work there's no retirement? Isn't that right, Bob? <laughs> no retirement. I remember. <laughs> And he asked the Lord one question. What should time cost? And how did get the mission of that? policy, time policy, you know, they all sort of, you know, good stuff. And he got one, one mission station with, with the door of the way to find all the wooden beds. He says, what's your time cost? And he says, well, you want to shoot some of the mission and you're fresh. Well, son. <laughs> all, all this comes back to me. I told the church that if I die in operation, that they can just push my ashes into a little crevice in the church wall, yeah, right by the mission station. <laughs> if your health's going to degenerate, plan and prepare for it. You're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Plan and prepare for it. One of the great manifestations of grace is precisely God's warnings about this evaluation. And we can argue till the cows come home, they seldom do, about the manner of mechanics of the second coming. But the day the world ends, that I've said before yesterday, that is most graspable for us is the day we die, when our world ends as we know it. And that's the characters of, characters of heaven that presented as a kind of paradise retirement home. 
certainly don't help to promote holy zeal and labor. And it's alarming that many Christians are staking their eternal destiny on such hazy and vague impressions. The New Testament urges us to consider three things. One, it's the last hour. Two, in a moment when you think not. Three, you are going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So we are called in the present time to responsibility for accountability in future time. And the evaluation is not about whether we're saved or lost. We're saved. We've been delivered from the first judgment because Jesus is our Savior. Yes. And there's now no condemnation to those who are in him. Yes. But as my Lord and my Master, he will ask me his servant, steward, and give an account of my stewardship for the purpose of rewards. Someone has commented that because Jesus is our Savior, all believers will be spotless at the evaluation, but because of differing responses to his Lordship, and I would add differing stewardship of our time, we won't all have the same service record. One of my favorite Bible teachers when I was a young man, uh, I remember him quoting another wonderful man, uh, our difficulty at the judgment seat of Christ will not be with passports, but with baggage. That is the way it usually is when one travels. What I want you to get is God is looking for a way to bless. You might be wondering what the judgment seat of Christ can have in common with the blessed hope of heaven. Everything. It's all about God looking for a way to bless. It's about the desire to commend, not condemn. The Bible is insistent and Jesus is persistent about rewards. Great is your reward in heaven. The Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you openly. If anyone gives a cup of cold water, he will certainly not lose his reward. The Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what he has done. This is all related to the blessings of fruitfulness and obedience and righteous character and endurance and suffering as we've stewarded our time. But inevitably, it's also about losses because there will be differences between wood, hay, and stubble. But I love the way that Scripture throws out hints about some of these rewards. The prize that Paul spoke about. The victor's crown in Philippians 3.14. The lovers of the Lord's appearing crown, 2 Timothy 4.7. The soul winner's crown, 1 Thessalonians 2.19. The endurance through trial crown, James 1. The shepherd's reward, 1 Peter 5. One to four. You banking on a reward there, <laughs> Glenn? <laughs> this is Paul's motivation. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. See, the, 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 his perspective on future time, the blessed hope as it's called, was totally what his view of present life was all about. The second coming... The judgment seat of Christ, is that in our future perspective? I'm going to quickly suggest three things. Three outcomes of having future time, according to Scripture, in your focus for your present life. The first is simply that it encourages us and motivates us to live a present tense, cleansed life. And I'm only going to quote from Thessalonians, these three points. 1 Thessalonians 3.13. It's all about that you will be holy and blameless in the presence of God when our Lord comes. 
So this hope about then, and it's a point I've stressed in the last 24 hours, is about holiness now. So whether there is a complacency about sin or an insensitivity to the pride of our own hearts or an unrepentant spirit, that's the recipe for hopelessness. If our future expectation is to be with Christ, there'll be a motivation to be like him now. And this hope becomes one of the great spiritual motivators, a great stimulus for me for the expectation of healing and the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in my life now. So help me God. This is confirmed by the Apostle of Love, John. When he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, and everyone that has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure, 1 John 3, 2, 3. We might comment that the modern church must have lost its grip on the end of that anchor of hope that relates us to the realities of a holy heaven. Immediately before John writes what I just read, he writes, And now, dear children, continue in him, present time, so that when he appears, future time, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. The continuance of our holy convictions in the present will ensure the confidence of our hopeful convictions for the future. Our hope in the return of Christ is both sustained and secured by abiding in Christ now. To be a partaker of Christ, according to Scripture, is to hold fast to our assurance, our hope, quote, firm to the end. And yes, it's a blessed hope, but it's a holy hope. And as we saw in the Scripture I was quoted yesterday, 1 Peter 4, 7, a correct view of time that remembers the end results in present tense clear thinking now about life and godliness. It amazes me how many discipleship courses don't even deal with the end. This underscores the importance of our eschatology for our ethics. A blessed hope. Having the future, remembering the end. What scripture says about the end of time as we know it. Is a great motivator to keep us cleansed. All those in favor say aye. Second point. The focus, remembering the end, is one of God's provisions for keeping us in challenging times comforted. Not just cleansed, comforted. Again, reading from different passages in Thessalonians, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 2 Thessalonians 2, we will be with the Lord forever. Listen how he goes on. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. He goes on to talk about eternal encouragement and good hope. And then he repeats again, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his glory. Look, there's much about what Scripture teaches about the future that is really confronting. But it is also hugely comforting. This is the same comfort you see in Hebrews 6 when it talks about the strong consolation that is ours because of where we know our hope is anchored. The idea of comfort here is not about a sort of depressed, low-key exchange of best wishes for a besieged and beleaguered church in the middle of the 21st century. It's a massively strong and powerful pouring in of comfort. It's like pouring in concrete. It's all about proactively encouraging our faith and hope. It's not about containing our fears till Jesus hopefully comes. Mind you, Scripture's realistic. There are plenty of grounds for fear in the present time. 
And he goes on to write to the Thessalonians. He talks about the rebellion, the secret power of lawlessness, the coming of the lawless one, the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. He talks about a powerful delusion. So what is the comfort amidst all this cultural catastrophe and confusion? The Lord will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Lord Jesus, but it also wants me to ask him to delay. <laughs> you know that millions are going to come in at the last minute. Jesus' parable of the 11th hour. I often think about that. I think that's going to be an awful lot of problem for a lot of Christians. What do we know about the last minute? You know how long I had to wait for Jesus? You know how miserable it was? You know, I know how long I had to wait for into the last minute? Call that just. There's a difference in rewards. Lose yours by being such a miserable beggar. The coming of the lawless one, everything that's coming upon the earth, everything that's coming up or going down, runs into the splendor of his coming. Man, that encourages me in the present. Third thing I'll throw out there. If we focus, if our if our stewardship of if we focus on remembering the end, its impact on our stewardship of present time is huge. If it's cleansed, comforted, third point I'll give you is it settles issues of your commitment. So then stand firm and hold on to the teachings. Never tire of doing what's right. We urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. He repeats that in Thessalonians. We urge you to increase more and more. So those who have this remembering the end perspective, look how it impacts their stewardship of time. They're living on a different timeline. I said yesterday, it's an eternal one. Those who hope, Paul says, are the sons of light. They're on light time, not night time. One defined by sleep, the other by awakening. And it's this remembering the end. It's this, it's this future hope that determines the difference. And as you know, Jesus himself spoke about the need to labor while it is daytime. Because the night comes when no one can work. Be dressed ready for service. Keep your lamps burning like men and women waiting for their master to return. It'll be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And this is precisely what Paul is repeating to the Thessalonians and these, the images he uses here. His coming will be like a thief in the night or like labor pains upon a pregnant woman. In other words, the future hope of his coming settles the issue about the nature, the necessity, the manner, and the mode of our present commitment. Now it makes sense to you why the appeals for diligence or the warnings in the New Testament against laziness occur in contexts when this future hope is being discussed. We want each of you, Hebrews 6.11, to show the same diligence when? To the end. And we do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and, guess what, patience, inherit what has been promised. So again, patience has nothing to do with passivity and sitting around and just waiting. Our waiting is active, it is urgent, it is fervent, because any day is possible and no day is impossible. 
And that's why, interesting in the New Testament, end times virtues are, are related to how we behave in time, like perseverance and long-suffering and endurance, how we deal with the exigencies of what's happening in our lives and time. That's the shortest three-point sermon I've ever preached. What a tragedy of time passing without the fulfillment of God-given giftings and potential. I'll tell you something I don't want on my tombstone. He had potential. Hosea 13.3, Ephraim, a child without wisdom. When the time arrives, he does not come to the opening of the womb. The days are coming. No one spoke more insistently or pointedly about the days, about time future than Jesus himself. Jesus puts together opportunity for the present time with importunity and prayer. And he deals with it in graphic terms. The door will be shut just like the door to the ark was shut. And a time will come when it will actually be too late to do anything about it. Some more convenient time won't work. There's a terrifying phrase. I quoted the scripture, Acts 24, 25 last night. I didn't quote uh, one of the ways it puts it. Felix adjourned the proceedings. We are tempted to adjourn the proceedings of God in our life for our own reasons. To stop the clock on what God is wanting to do in our life and delay it. The maintenance of your family time is not just about the family events or the activities you do. That's all wonderful. It's what a family does. But it's crucially related. The quality of that time, I'm arguing, is crucially related to your personal stewardship of your time as a member of this family. I pointed it out yesterday, but it goes on and on. It's interesting that the talk of time ends up with a personal talk to members of the family. Encourage one another, Grace DC, daily. Daily. Daily? I ain't got time for that. As long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Today, if you hear his voice, you see this crucial role of our mutual encouragement helping us to steward our time and perspective of time passing right. Otherwise, you'll harden your hearts. This wisdom will revolutionize your discipline of time. Today's work, today's obedience is what it's all about. By the way, tomorrow in your life, Monday morning, is not going to change anything that you don't address today that God calls you to address. Maybe as I've, I've, I've said to you several times, if I've said it once, I'm taking responsibility for this emphasis just based on the, um, the, the place I am in my own life approaching three score years and ten, that I've, I've found myself in my life uh, in recent years, my guiding principle on most things that arise it is that saying, there's no time like the present. You know, I, I don't want to be cluttering up my life with incompletions and loose ends, especially of things the Lord has so clearly called to engage, the obediences that just get so easily sloughed. I've said to the Lord, I just can't afford at this season of my life to have all these loose ends hanging about me. And again, I'm a relaxed guy, I'm not, I'm not manic about it, but I'm, I'm urgent about it. There's at least one person who's taken the shortness of time to heart. There's a great spur of action. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. 
he is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. And the increase in the intensity of evil and blatantly demonic activity should be matched by the increase, the apostles argue, in wise fervency of the redeemed, who as such redeem the time precisely because these days are evil. So family, let's, let's be trusting the Lord for the restoration of the past, the redeeming of the present, and the empowerment of his Holy Spirit which calls to remembrance the things we need to remember as we do not forget the end. Someone wrote, I have only just a minute, only 60 seconds in it, forced upon me, can't refuse it, didn't seek it, didn't choose it. But it's up to me just how I use it. I must suffer if I lose it, give account if I abuse it. Just a tiny little minute. But eternity is in it. Redeem the time. God only knows how soon our little life may close with all its pleasures and its woes. Redeem the time. Lord, help us to redeem the time you give us every day to take each opportunity to follow and obey. When I was a young man, I, I heard this poem and I learned it. Many of you probably not recognize it and know it. The Lord used it in my life at that time. And it wasn't a, it's interesting, it's not a fear issue in the sense of being spooked. It's a, it's a holy warning that puts the fear of the Lord on you. When I stand at the judgment seat of Christ and he shows me his plan for me. The plan of my life as it might have been had he had his way. I see how I blocked him here. I checked him there. I would not yield my will. Will there be grief in my Savior's eyes? Grief though he loves me still. He would have me rich, but I stand there poor, stripped of all that is grace. As memory runs like a haunted thing down the years that I cannot retrace. My desolate heart will well nigh break with the tears that I cannot shed. As I cover my face with my empty hands. I bow my uncrowned head. Lord, of the years that are left to me, I give them to thy hand. Take me, break me, mold me for the pattern thou hast planned. I began yesterday saying there were a couple of words, Kronos and Kairos, succession of time, significance of time. God puts the Kairos into our Kronos. But there's a third word that the New Testament uses. And it's the word for now that sounds a bit like our English word noon. Now. So my appeal, dear hearts, to you is if you're going to do something for God or be summoned for him that your heart is crying out for, now is the time. Luke 6, 21, if you hunger for God, now is the time to be filled. John 4, 23, if you're going to be a worshiper, now is when true worshipers worship. Romans 6.19, if you're going to walk free of sinful bondages, what Paul calls slaves to impurity, now is the time to offer your members and yourselves as slaves to righteousness and holiness. When Paul disciples Titus, he says, son, now is the time to live righteously and godly in this present world. Jesus opened his ministry with the parable of the sower and seed. He said, if you hear his word and obey it, now you will reap a hundredfold. Listen to what he says. It's a time parable. In the present time, he says, and in the world to come. Romans 8.1, why keep living under the accusation of the enemy about your past? 
that will continue to haunt your future if there is now no condemnation. Romans 11.30, now is the time you can receive mercy. Now is the day of salvation. God's time is now. So the answer to when, your answers to getting to then, will be determined by your decisions in present time. It's interesting that high noon has become a critical phrase in our language of a moment of critical decision. Noon comes from the Latin nona hora, which was, as you know, the ninth hour. Isn't that interesting? It wasn't midday. Midday wasn't 3 p.m. at medieval Rome and, and, and European uh, culture. Any bells ringing? Did we not say right at the beginning? The best time was the right time, Romans 5, 6, when Jesus gave up his life, when Christ died. At the ninth hour, at high noon, at that critical moment, Jesus gave up his spirit. And at that moment, our relationship with time past, time present, time future was changed. Time will not win in my death, but I will experience everlasting eternal time with the living God. So, dear hearts, let's name and deal with those locusts of past time. Let's deal with the enemies that oppose our stewardship of present time. Let's focus on the future time according to the Lord that motivates us in our present time. And I, I want to encourage you. I'm, uh, I've loved watching you and seeing you. I, I try not to cry, but I love the church. I love seeing the expressions of it. How kind God is to our city to give us the Grace Network. What kindness. And not all of you are here forever. Some of you have been here for years, and what a blessing you are to the planting and growing of the community. But let's consecrate this time and season of your life in Grace DC, where you're experiencing family time. May the health and the wholeness and the holiness of this family time, may you, may you remember it for years if you move. Be influenced, may be enriched by your own personal stewardship of time in restoring past, redeeming present, and remembering the end. It ain't family time without your time being stewarded right. So may this be, for all of you, one of the spiritual high times of your life, where you walk out of the night of your past, where you walk as a son and daughter of light in the present, and you anticipate the eternal future with joy ready and right for Jesus. And according to Revelations 22.5, you will need neither a lamp nor a light of the sun. The Lord God will give you light. Amen. Thanks for listening.